Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here and grateful to get to bring God's word to you this morning. I have to admit, though, the, the journey to, to get to this point uh, in writing this sermon and, and spending time in this word and dealing with it was uh, just like an ongoing wrestling match throughout the week. I just, it was a, uh, just trying to get at, like, what is it that the Lord has for us from this text? Because on the one hand, at the beginning of this passage, you have like, that famous statement that what, even like, non-believers are aware of, the truth will set you free. And we know that, like that's this incredible statement, and it's used in, in speeches and writing all the time at this point, taking from Jesus. And then at the end of this passage, we, we've got uh, Jesus, we haven't read it yet, but we actually go, we're going to go through the entirety of chapter 8 this morning. And at the end of it, Jesus declares, before Abraham was, I am. It's one of his most famous statements and because it was so startling. Jesus is making the claim in that statement that he is God. He is taking the name that God revealed, used to reveal himself to Moses and God's people in the book of Exodus, and he's applying it to himself. And so we've got, like, on either side of this text, you've got, like, short phrases from verses that could just be preached on. It could be written about and have been written about for, like, on end. And then you've got all this stuff in between, and it's like, man, like, what do you, what do, you do with that? Um, and, and we're deeply committed to, to preaching through books of the Bible and through whole texts, and not just, like, kind of cherry-picking the things that, like, really captivate us, but, but really understanding, like, man, we've got, yes, these great mountain peak verses, Man, the stuff in between is important too. It, like the, it's it's the meat of the text that we get to we get to chew on together. And we've got to learn to chew on it. It's not it's not easy necessarily, but and it's the beauty of the Bible workshop that's going on in there right now is that that you can get equipped to to, to unpack these things yourself. But as we look at the whole of this text, there is no part of God's word that is unimportant. There's no part of God's word that he didn't intentionally put in there, that he didn't inspire for our good, the building up of his people. And so we don't just, we're not just going to land on the truth will set you free, though we'll talk about that. We're not just going to land on, like, before Abraham was, I am, and, and just kind of spend a bunch of time there. But rather, we're going to walk through the whole of this text. And, and I think as we do that, what, what we find is that Jesus in this text while those two phrases are really important, like there's a bigger thing happening here where Jesus is sorting out which house you're in, which house the Jews were in, those who were standing before him in the crowds. And, and what we see, because at the end of last week's text, it said as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there was this whole slew of people that had just believed in Jesus, and suddenly he's going, well, if you're truly my disciples then you'll abide in my word. And so he's giving this filter for, for how to sort out, like, how do you know if you're in my house, or we'll, we see later in the text, or in the house of the devil, the father of lies? Whose house do you belong to? 
as I was reading this, I couldn't, like, as I began to see, like, Jesus is talking about household and lineage and, and what family are you a part of, I couldn't help but thinking, like, it's really similar to um, any Harry Potter fans in the house tonight, today. Okay, yes, I got a few hands going up. Um, I kind of wondered, like, man, do co- have college students even seen Harry Potter? Like, I don't know. I just, my, my brother, who's nine years younger than me, um, I realized how old I feel, um, because I discovered a few weeks ago that he had never seen Lord of the Rings. And I was like, well, certainly, like, he loves that kind of stuff. Surely he's seen Lord of the Rings. Then I realized, looked up, it just bothered me so much. I was like, when did it come out? I realized he was three years old when it came out. So I just realized I'm old at this point, and and so not assuming. But um, Harry Potter, um, so several of you have seen it, but it's this, when... The first book starts, all right, actually, I haven't seen the, or read the books, I've seen the movies, so um, anyway, I know I just broke some of your hearts, um, but um, when a whole new slew of, of people come to Hogwarts, this, this, they get this sorting hat out, right? They all come into this room, and there's this sorting hat, and it's magical, right? That's the whole thing with Harry Potter, and, and they put the sorting hat on each kid that comes in, and it, it kind of looks at each of them, and, um, and kind of actually, like, looks like, has this conversation with them internally, and um, all this sort of, like, Harry Potter stuff, all right? Um, and then, basically, it then sorts them into one of four households, based on what their character is like, what they value, and how they behave, and so they get into Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw or Gryffindor and Slytherin. All right, I had to look it up. I didn't actually know that. But um, so there's those four houses, and they sort them out based upon, like, which house they're really most like and that they embody. And in a similar way, like, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying just what house do you want to be in. All right, what house do you kind of claim because you like some of the ideas that go with it. But, but rather, which house do you actually belong to? So Jesus is essentially putting the sorting hat on the Jews that he's talking to here. And as we read this word, he's putting the sorting hat on us. And consider, which house do we actually belong to? See, the Jews in verse 30, a bunch of them had believed, but when we look in the Gospel of John, what he does over and over again is he often brings to the fore that there is a difference between true faith and and false faith. There's a difference between true disciples and false disciples, those who last and those who are just with Jesus temporarily and then move on. And so Jesus, as all these people believe in him, he's then saying, well, some of you are you don't really believe me. You don't have true faith in me. And so the argument that follows from this, this first, if you abide in me, my word, or in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The argument that follows from that is, is seeking to expose those that aren't of Jesus' house. And so I just want to briefly walk through that conversation and see the way Jesus sorts us out, and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack that. And so let's walk through the text fairly quickly, and then we're going to zoom out, all right? So Jesus gives this initial principle for who's truly a part of his house, the Father's house, and the Jews immediately respond, starting verse 33, with an objection. They object several times over throughout this text, right? And there's this back and forth. And the very first response is, like, we don't need freedom. Like, we're free. Like, we're part of Abraham's household. What are you talking about, Jesus? So they immediately go to that household language and that, that we're, Abraham is our father, 
we don't need your freedom. And Jesus makes clear, though, then, in his response, that he's speaking of something more than physical freedom. He's speaking of a spiritual freedom. So they're kind of talking on this, like, surface level, like, this, just this world kind of freedom. And Jesus is talking about something much more significant, a spiritual freedom in a spiritual household, not just a physical freedom in a physical lineage or household. And then the Jews, they're not getting what Jesus is implying. In, in verse 38, when he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Because we heard when Matt read the text earlier, he's talking about the father of lies, Satan himself. But what they hear is, they're still thinking on this like physical level. And so they reiterate their credentials based on this physical deal. And they say, Abraham is our father. What in the world are you talking about? And so Jesus, once again, patiently but clearly clarifies that he is sorting the houses based not on some physical or mere human connection, but through the values and behaviors that, that are at the very core of who we are. That a lot, whether or not we align in who we are and how we live with the word of the head of the household, with the word of the father of all creation and the father of truth, or the father of lies and of destruction. And so the Jews finally begin to, to catch on, all right, but they're, they're not yet fully there. So they, they demand that they're of God's house, and yet they're still doing this from this like physical descent. So they're starting to catch on. Okay, Jesus is talking about something more here. He's not just talking about physical descent. And they say in verse, um, in verse 41, they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. So see, in their minds, they're like, it's all about being physically connected to Abraham, but they say, but because we're physically connected to Abraham, we have one father, even God. And so we, we do have that. We are of the right spiritual house, Jesus. Of course we are. We're, we're Jews. Like if anyone has the, the right to claim connection with God the Father, it's us, right? We're, we're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom all the promises came. We're, we're, we're children of, of, of Moses and those who came out of Egypt. We're, we're the ones that got delivered back from exile and are here now. Of course God is our Father. But once again, moving from there, Jesus clarifies. He brings light into their darkness. He's clarifying. And, and so their lack of understanding of what he is saying is actually just more evidence of which house they belong to, that they're not receptive to the light. And it's here in verses 42 to 47 that Jesus brings the hammer down. He says there's two houses. He just makes it starkly clear. He's like, all right, enough messing around. There's God the Father's house, and there is the Father of lies. You're in one or the other. And he says, you are of the devil. You are of the devil. He says, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And he, he's couched all of this. The reason Jesus says this is true of them is, is, is because this theme of the word that we see throughout this argument. In verse 37, he says, your word finds no place, or God's word finds no place in them. And then in verse 43, he says that, that you can't bear to hear my word. 
Your longings don't line up with my word, and so you can't even bear to hear it. And then verse 47, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so they're not a part of the Father's household because the word finds no place in them, they can't bear it, and they don't hear it. And Jesus says, so because of that, like you're just proving that you are of Satan. You're of his household. You're still there. You, you, may have, you may say you believe in me. You may say you may like some of the things I say, but, but you're not actually part of my household. This is the primary filter. This relationship to the words, the primary filter for which we can sort out who's in Jesus' house and who's in Satan's house. And the Jews lose it at this point, right? They just kind of like lose their ever-loving minds because Jesus is saying, you're of the devil, right? And, and they're basically saying like kind of they go back to like they're so mad that they go back to like grade school and they say, hey, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, right? They're just like, they say, no, we're not of the devil, you're a demon, Jesus. You're a demon. That's what they say in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They just try to turn it around. They make no argumentation whatsoever. They just say, Jesus, no, we're not of de- the devil, you are. They've lost their minds. They're angry. And now let's see how Jesus responds. I want to read the rest of the text now and and continue to walk through it. Starting in verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Look, when they turn it around and say, no, you're a demon, Jesus, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't just kind of buy into their their angry response, but rather he continues to speak the truth in love. He's continuing just to shine his light upon them and expose their darkness. And he points out why they're wrong and the massive implications of being wrong. He essentially says this in verses 49 to 51. He says, watch what you say and how you approach my word because your life is on the line. Like your very life is on the line. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So how you approach my word, Jesus is saying, your very life depends on it. 
take care. Don't just jump to conclusions. Don't just respond out of, out of not liking the light. Let the light shine on you and let it invade into you. But they don't. And the final back and forth brings the exchange to this explosive end, right? The Jews are at their wit's end and they just declare in verse 53, who do you think you are? And Jesus explains once again, not in an anxious way, but just responding. He says, he's the son of the father. He's the one who sets free. He's the one who brings life. And they can, they can know that he, he can do that, that he can actually bring freedom and bring life because he is in perfect alignment with the Father. With the word of the Father, the will of the Father, he acts in perfect accordance with his word. And in fact, that shows that not only can he con- connect people to the Father, but that he is God himself. I am. And, Jesus, and that's when the Jews pick up stones because they understand that, that declaration. You and I may, may not initially recognize it when we read that text, but, but when the Jews heard it, they knew what that claim was. They knew that that claim was his claim to deity. That he was saying, I'm not just a mere human being. I am the Son of God and very God himself. And so they, because they didn't believe him, they picked up stones because anyone that would blaspheme in such a way deserved to die. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. They were doing what their law required, but they missed the reality that Jesus was the fulfillment of their law, that he was the one that actually perfectly aligned with the law, that he was actually the one who wrote the law itself. He is the very word of God, as this gospel starts out talking about. And so the through line in this text, um, which house do you belong to? how you're going to get sorted out and how the Jews were being sorted out is their relationship with the word. It comes down to how do you relate with the word, the light of the world, Jesus, his word. And Jesus begins this text, this sorting process, giving us this filter, and he highlights the primary marker for those who actually follow him, who belong to him, and it's this. Verse 31, bring us back to the beginning. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This abide in, in Jesus' word is this idea of persevering in it, like continuing in the word, not letting go, clinging to it day in, day out, over the long haul. That doesn't mean you do it perfectly. Let's be really clear there. But it does mean there's this, this marker of your life of continuing to hold to the truth of God's word, to the truth of Jesus, to who he is, over and above all the other competing voices in our in our lives. And so here's the big idea of this whole text, that those who belong to Jesus continue to embrace his word. They continue to embrace his word. We allow the light of the world, as we talked about last week, to invade every crevice of our lives, to continue to shine on us. Because we as human beings, the reality is that when we come to faith in Jesus, when we trust in him and we, we enjoy the light that he provides, there's still plenty of darkness left that for him to shine his light on. The crevices of our soul, the, the habits that we've formed as we've gone our own way before we've turned to follow his way. Like there's just a lifetime of things for Jesus to continue to shine his light upon us. And so 
The big idea is that those who belong to Jesus continue to embrace his word. Not just when it's easy. Not just when we see it as immediately beneficial, like the Jews, when they saw the miracles and the signs, they went running after him. But when they encountered the hard sayings of Jesus, suddenly they started backing away, and you see the disciples leaving in droves because they weren't true disciples. And so if we zoom back out on the context, because we've been walking chapter 7 through next week when we, we get through chapter 9, it's in this context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And last week we looked at, at how the theme of light with the Feast of Tabernacles, of God's people, the recounting of God's people journeying through the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land, that light was a significant theme. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. And, and, and we talked last week, Matt, Matt unpacked how the light has defeated darkness, how we can enjoy the victory of the light over the darkness. And we can participate in that. That Jesus came to punch holes in the darkness and to bring light to all the world and all of creation. And that we, when we embrace the light of the world, we get to also participate in punching holes in the darkness. And I don't know about you, but like that was invigorating. That was exciting. I love the idea, right, of, of, of overcoming the darkness and the brokenness in this world with the, the light of Jesus. That I get to be a part of that victory and that conquering with him. And we love those ideas that gets us excited. But the question is this, when we come to the text this week, because clearly a lot of other people, the Jews, loved that idea. Yeah, we want to participate in that. That's what they were expecting from the Messiah, conquer. But the question that we encounter this week is, how do we respond when Jesus punches holes in our darkness? How do we respond when Jesus punches holes in our darkness, not just when he invites us to be a part of punching holes in the darkness out there, but when he shines his light on us and continues to expose the darkness in our own hearts. See, I love the thought of punching holes in the darkness out there. I, I, I love to be able to see the darkness in other people and in the world around me. That's easy, right? But what happens? How do I respond when he begins to shine his light on my heart? And I experience the pain of that. Maybe the shame of that. The good news is that we don't have to live there, right? Jesus, Jesus destroys our shame and he takes away our guilt. But how do we respond in that? Because look, plenty of people, by, by common grace of God, punch holes in the darkness of our broken world. And they give to the needy when they, when they, when they serve someone else. Even if it's twisted by, by sinful ambition or whatever it may be, there's still a... a little bit of light being punched in the darkness, but you can do that and not be a part of the kingdom of God. You could do all the right things and not be a part of the kingdom, not be a part of God's household. Because the mark, what Jesus is getting at, the mark of a true disciple is one who allows Jesus to continually punch holes in their darkness, to continue to convict them of sin, to expose their struggle over and over again, abiding in the word, persevering in that experience. But that's painful. Like, why in the world would we do that? Why in the world would we allow that light to encroach on us time and again? Right? I mean, it's like the experience of like when my kids wake up in the morning and we first turn on the lights and they're, they're like, you know, throwing the blanket over them because it's like it's too much. It hurts their eyes, right? Because when light hits dark places, it's painful, it's uncomfortable. 
We don't like it. We want to flee back to the darkness. And so why, like, like why would we lean into the light? Why would we keep our eyes gazed wholly on this word and allow it to punch holes in our darkness? I think Jesus, in this text, he's not just trying to like, just make the Jews uh, feel bad because they're Satan's house and, and, and he's of the Father's house. No, he's also, along the way, trying to point them to reasons why they should lean into the light that they should embrace the word of God. And so let's look at three reasons why we would embrace the word. And then we're going to shift to looking at, at how we just like typically resist that word, just like the Jews do. And we'll wrap with, with how do we practically cultivate embracing the word in our life? How do we practically abide in it day in, day in, day out? So three reasons to embrace the light of the word. One, true freedom comes from this word. It comes from the light. All right, that brings us to the most famous part of this text, right? The truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's an incredible promise. It's incredibly good news. That's why so many people focus on just that. And so we should look at this. And, and one of the commentators writes this though, because for the Jews, like they don't see it as that great of a promise, right? Like they respond with, well, what's the like, Jesus, we don't need your freedom. Why, like, why are you offering us freedom? Andreas Kostenberger highlights this. He says, freedom was considered to be the birthright of every Jew. The law laid down that no Jew, however poor, should descend to the level of a slave. In Leviticus 25, 39 to 42. The Mishnah states, even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as free men who have lost their possessions for their sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to the Jewish Talmud, all Israel are royal children. And this is why, that perspective is why Jews found it so ridiculous that Jesus was trying to offer them freedom. You don't offer us freedom. Like, we are the one free people in all the world, right? God himself delivered us out of slavery. We're truly free. And just think how, like, how similar are we to that as Americans, we don't need set free. And when we hear that verse, like, yeah, we, we wave that banner, but because we've got it to offer to other people as Americans. Like, we, we know what freedom's all about here, right? And we've defined freedom. Like, we are the leaders of the free world, right? And so, like, we in our society, like, we feel that as a, as a country, and there's many blessings of, of freedom that we have here that we should celebrate, right, and be thankful to God for. But we can also assume that it's our, our birthright and that we, we understand what freedom's all about. And Jesus is actually confronting us with a freedom that's very different than our individualistic, Americanized kind of freedom that says we can and demand to do as we please. Like that's, what our cult, that's the culture we swim in. Like I don't, need, I don't need someone else's freedom. I'm able to do and I can demand to be able to do whatever I please. So what is Jesus really offering with freedom? Like, like I make my own way. Right? I, like, as little kids, we hear over and over again, hey, you could be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Like, you just have all this freedom, right? So what does Jesus really have to offer us here? Well, see, Jesus is highlighting the fact that while we think we're free to do as we please, we're actually enslaved to what pleases us. We're enslaved to it. Verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
We're not free to do as we please. We're enslaved to what pleases us. And that has tragic ramifications. We're addicted to our desires. Every one of us is like an addict in our sins. We're addicted to it. Whether it's substances like alcohol or drugs, whether it's, it's sex through or pornography or, um, or you know, sexual intimacy outside of marriage, whatever it may be, or whether it's subtler things like our comforts and our, our entertainment or the way we can kind of control our life and, and ensure with, you know, that we've got security and safety and those kinds of things. We're addicted to whatever desire is driving us most. And as a result, I mean, addicts, have broken relationships all over the place. Because sin, it breaks down relationships. And just like an addict, because in our sin, we're a slave to it, we, we allow our desires to trump the good of others. And we end up using others to get what we want. We end up getting angry at others when they get in the way of what we want. And our relationships break down because we're a slave to sin. We're a slave to our desires. We're a slave to what pleases us rather than just free to pursue what pleases us. That's not what freedom's all about. And not only does that addiction and that slavery break our relationships with one another, but it has broken our relationship with God. I mean, that, that at its worst is the most tragic ramification of all is that our sin has broken us apart from God who gives true freedom, who who has created the world so that we can flourish, and yet it sent us as addicted and enslaved to our passions to flee from God in order that we might be like God and make our own way and find pleasure on ourselves and on our own terms. And as a result, we're like in our sin, apart from Jesus' light invading the world, We're separated from God eternally. And we do need the freedom of Jesus. And Os Guinness sums it up really well when he defines freedom this way. He says, freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. Freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. See, what Jesus is promising is that the light of the word not only not only shows you what you ought to do, not only kind of lays down what's, what's good and right, but it also, the light of the world, word has the power to enable you, to give you the freedom to actually pursue what you ought to do. Because in our addiction to our desires, we may know that that's good, but we can't break free of the addiction to go after it. And so, Jesus actually, in his freedom, enables us to live a truly good life. And that freedom allows our relationships to flourish. All right, it's, not, it's not what brings us back into relationship with God, living a truly good life, but it's as we embrace the light by the grace of Christ and faith in him that he brings us back into relationship with God and we're able to live out a life of true flourishing in that freedom. And that's the next point is that Jesus not only offers us true freedom, but he offers us true life as well. Verse 51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus offers a life now and forever that overcomes physical death. Not only does Jesus promise freedom to live the truly good life, but he also offers us life everlasting. 
his word has the power to deliver life. Not just freedom to kind of live this neutral life, but, but it offers us life. Unlike the words of so many others who fail to deliver. Right, we listen to all kinds of voices, trying to find life in all kinds of places. Like, like for some of us, it may be political hopes, right? And we, we listen to political pundits and we have like the hope that things in this crazy world that we live in right now could somehow kind of, like if we just find the right political party to get behind or the right political candidate in an election year, that we, that we might have hope that, this, that life can have some sort of stability. But man, that fails every time. They never deliver, right? They overpromise and underdeliver every single time. It's because they don't offer true life. And then some of us may not, may not cast our hopes in political things, but, but maybe it's physical health, right? We're just like, hey, I, just, I, like, I know that like, if I can just order my diet and exercise, that's going to allow me to live the, the, the most you know, flourishing life possible. I'll have energy and I'll just be able to sustain all that I want to do. And so we read all kinds of things. We, we get out the junk food. We, we you know, bring in the organic food and all that sort of stuff. And, and we just bank on like, like, this life is it and I'm going to make it to the fullest by, by ensuring that I have physical health for as long as possible. But a life that's based just in this world, like it'll, it's fragile as well. Uh, I can't help but thinking about this is uh, if you've ever watched Parks and Rec, Rob Lowe's character in Parks and Rec, uh, Chris Traeger, uh, is just obsessed with health. And if maybe you don't know the Parks and Rec, but, but Rob Lowe, he's kind of a picture of health, right? I mean, that guy, he's just uh, both, both physically and what he eats and all, all those sorts of things, just, just the actor himself. And, and yet in the show, one of the things we find is that he's just constantly running, constantly trying to eat the right things and do the right things so he can stave off aging, if at all possible. He's finding his hope in this, in this life that he can provide for himself. And then a couple times you see, like, he gets sick or, or, or something else happens, and, and that, like, it, it exposes him to the fragility of, of the life that he's trying to, to build on his own and his physical health, and he just is crushed by it. <laughs> just absolutely crushed by it. And, and, and what we recognize is this the political hopes, physical health. We can talk about personal ambition. We can talk about all kinds of things that we go after. And each of these things are utterly fragile. They're fragile. There, there is no indestructibility about them. And yet Jesus offers us an indestructible life. Lasting life. Because he came. And he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He lived a life perfectly aligned with God's word. Not controlled by his desires, but controlled by the word and the will of the Father. And he went to the cross and died to death that you and I deserve because of our sin, because of our addiction, because we can't set ourselves free on our own. And he died that death in order to defeat sin in our lives and to bring us to himself. And he rose from the dead three days later that we might have a true lasting life. He broke the chains on the cross. He delivered life to us and he shows us that he can by rising from the dead. And all, like, our response is to be merely trusting in him, not get yourself together to be able to enjoy that true life. But just trust in him. Turn from trusting yourself and trust in his life and his freedom that he can give to you through the cross and the resurrection. But how do we know that that's true? Because some of us go, are looking at Jesus still and some of you are going, yeah, okay, so he's offering this freedom, he's offering this life, but how do we know that we can count on that? And, and the Jews are, are really asking that same question and that's when he gets to that big statement in verse 58. 
He says, I am. See, the Jews responded to that statement by getting ready to stone him, but that only exposed how out of line they were with the true foundation of reality, God himself. Jesus can make these claims, and he can back them up, because his alignment with the Father is perfect. He heard the Father, and he kept the Father's word perfectly. See, in chapters 7 through 9, we're in the middle of what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a feast about the Israelites' journey through the wilderness from Egypt to the, the Promised Land. And Jesus standing in front of them is a stark contrast to how the Israelites behaved during that time. The Israelites were tested for 40 years in the wilderness, and over and over again, they failed to abide in God's word. They failed to persevere and cling to the truth of God's word. When Moses went up on the mountain, they didn't trust that God was good, and they just thought they were going to build their own God. When, when they started receiving manna from heaven and they got tired of it, rather than, than trusting that God's continuing to abide and that his provision is good and right for them, they longed to go back to Egypt, to the comforts there, they claimed, enslavement. And then when they get to the edge of the promised land and the spies come back with the report about the giants in the land, rather than trusting God about his goodness and his promise to conquer, they trust in the reports of the, the, the ten spies that say, we can't do this. Over and over again, they failed to abide in God's word. But Jesus went into the wilderness. He was tempted over and over again by the father of lies himself for 40 days and 40 nights. And what did he do? He conquered. He overcame he lived in perfect alignment through abiding with God's word. See, every step of the way, Jesus is exhibiting that he is perfectly aligned with the Father's will. And he finally reveals the full implications of that, that he is God. He is God, the very foundation of reality itself. The reason we must embrace his word, that we can trust that he can provide freedom and life, is because he is the true, sure foundation of reality itself. He's the true, sure foundation for your soul. In the midst of this crazy, chaotic, turbulent time we live in, he is an unmoved anchor for you to, to attach yourself to in this ever-shifting culture. Because he is the I am. He is the I am. He's the true foundation, and as a result, he can give true freedom and true life. But here's the problem we don't naturally embrace him. We don't naturally embrace his word. We don't naturally, like the darkness in us flees from that light. We don't like it when Jesus punches holes in our darkness. Why? Because as he talked about in verses 34 to 35, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The darkness of our hearts is naturally resistant to the light of the word. We might like parts here and there, just like the Jews liked parts of Jesus here and there. They just wanted to pick and piecemeal together their part of Jesus that they liked. But abiding in him and in his word is, is buying into the whole. You don't get to pick and choose your Jesus, kind of put together your mosaic of him that you like. We might be attracted to parts of it, but we've got to, we've got to abide and persevere in the whole of his word. A false disciple consistently resists Jesus punching holes in their darkness. And this is what Jesus is sorting through here. Look, no one lives it perfectly. No one abides in his word perfectly. And we're not saved by abiding in his word. But it's the evidence of who is saved 
of who is, has true faith. The evidence of true faith is who abides in him, who continues and perseveres. And so the question is, what is your, mark, what is your life marked by? What is it characterized by? If, when the sorting hat is put on your head, like what does it see? Evaluate your heart. Are you marked by resisting or embracing the light? Are you marked by resisting or embracing the light? And that's why I want to spend a few moments here looking at how the Jews resisted the word and how we often do that. And then just practically, like how do we cultivate a life that embraces the word? And so three ways we resist the light of the word. All right, verse 37, the Jews did it this way and we do it too. Their word found no place in them. God's word found no place in them. And this idea of place here, this word, man, it's just like it is filled with meaning. All right, in the original language, it's this idea of, of um, something coming and living with and in and actually like transforming and having a, a progressive impact on the place that it's in. And so when he says, your word has no place in me, what he's saying is, is you're, you're resisting living with the word's transformative power in your life. You're not allowing it to change the way you live. Like, if the word's in us, it will have a transformative effect. It's, like, it's kind of like this. When, when I got married, Becca and I moved in together, and as a result, like, the, the way I lived when she moved in with me just turned my world upside down. All right, in a good way, like I praise God for it, okay? I said this when she was here, all right? I promise, in the first service. But, but when she moved in, like, you know, the kitchen became a very different place, all right? We still had Doritos because I was still there, all right? That was new for her. But, you know, like, we actually had meals cooked not in just the microwave or that weren't delivered from Wendy's, all right? Um, and then, like, it transformed other areas. The bathroom got cleaned uh, more than two times a year, all right? I, like, I... Um, she was very good for me, all right, and continues to be. Let's be really clear. The, but, like, even nine years into this thing, as we continue to live together, like, God uses that to, to transform us, and we continue to change one another over time and to be changed by one another, by our lives dwelling with one another. And in the same way, that's what Jesus is saying. When his word, if his word is in, has a place in you, it will impact you. Like, if it's dwelling in you truly, like day in and day out, it will transform you. And so one of the ways we resist it is not allowing it a, a room to, to impact our lives, to transform us. We don't allow him to shine the light on our darkness and change the way we live. But let's continue down to the root of that because like, we don't allow that to happen because we can't bear to hear the word. Right? We're resisting the longing for the word. All right, verses 43 to 44 says, um, why, why do you under, not understand why, what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This whole idea here is about, it's a connection to our will and our desires. Like we resist because um, we're not longing for the word. We're just not longing for it. We'll talk about how to cultivate that in a moment, but our resistance to the word is exposed in how we respond to hard sayings of Jesus. Do we really long for all of the word or just the fun promises of God's word? How do we respond when we see the exclusivity of Christ? When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do we long for someone, like for Jesus to be more inclusive? 
because that's the way our culture is going? Or, or do we lean into those hard sayings and go, Jesus, help me to embrace this, to long for this, to recognize the goodness of this? All right, our resistance to the, through the longings for the word is exposed when we encounter those hard sayings like that. When we encounter the Sermon on the Mount where hard sayings on divorce and marriage, on anger, on lust. We encounter hard sayings on sexuality and gender, on, on money, on the cost of following Jesus that we've got to take up our cross daily and die to self and follow after him. How do you respond? Are you resistant to it at the very longings that you have? Do you dismiss those hard sayings? Do you want them not to be true? Do you discredit them? Do you long for them to be different? It's one way that our hearts resist the word and its light in our lives is our long, we long for it to be different than it is. But we also resist the word, and this is really at the root of it, by just not hearing the word. We resist listening to it. It's, our resistance to the word is exposed in what voices we're listening to. We're listening to other people's words over Jesus' words. We fill ourselves with a hundred other voices. And through podcasts and TV and YouTube and TikTok and you know, the people we surround ourselves with, we're filling ourselves with a hundred other voices and we fail to hear what Jesus is truly saying because we're not listening to him. See, because to listen to Jesus means not just to, to even read his word or to hear a sermon preached, but to actually read his word, to hear a sermon preached, not with the filter of all those other voices. So one way we resist the word is that we, we, we filter Jesus' words through the voices that we have in our life, rather than allowing Jesus to filter those other voices in our lives. And so the question is, like, who are you listening to is, is about who's the filter, is Jesus the filter, or are those other voices the filter? Because that's who your authority is, and that's who you're truly listening to. Because if Jesus has to pass the test of some outside voice, that's the voice you're actually listening to. And so these are the ways that we resist the word. Now, how do we practically embrace it? How do we enjoy the freedom of the word? Enjoy the life that it gives us. Enjoy the foundation that he gives us to stand on. Because we live in this like, major cultural transition where we feel like there's just conflict and confusion all around us. We are at a transition point in culture between two eras, and we don't know what the future is going to look like, and yet, while we kind of long for some of the stability of the past, like, it's gone. It's going away, and so, like, we're in this transitory time, and it's like the wilderness season, and it's exposing who truly is trusting in Jesus' word and who is trusting in other voices. And so Jesus is giving us, though, a filter not only to sort ourselves out and, and, and to understand and know the difference between true disciples of Jesus and false disciples, but in this, he's giving us the path to persevere through the wilderness, the path to continue to abide in his word. And it's this, three things. We listen to the word through having the right practice. We need right practices. Like when we talk, when we have a text that talks about abiding in the word, it's really tempting just to go into like, hey, yeah, you need to do a Bible workshop and you need to like read the Bible more and you need to memorize. And we could just lay down all these rules about, you know, the things you need to do to listen to the word. Um, and, and yet, obviously, that's not what we've done here today. And yet, let's not get away from that because that's where it starts. That's where it starts. You've got to read it. Like if you're going to abide in the word, you've got to study it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to turn the volume up on the Lord's voice in your life and the volume down on other voices. So you've got to adjust your diet 
of what you're listening to. So I encourage you, like, obviously you're in this service, so you're not in that room doing the Bible workshop. That's okay. Um, you can come to first service next week and jump in there. Matt, Matt will get you the notes from this week so that you can catch up because they're learning how to study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you want to dive in, you're like, I need to listen to the word better, then, then dive into that. Find, find a community group and, and get involved in what we're calling growth groups. It's a way that we can, you can connect with two to three other people. Uh, men are connected with men, women are connected with women, and they're diving into the word together to listen to Jesus' voices other, over and above outside voices. So find some practice to listen to the word. But also got to cultivate a longing for the word. Got to cultivate a longing for the word. And that comes with, with correcting our posture. We've got to correct our posture. When we come to the word, how do we approach it? Are, are our desires standing in judgment of the word? Or are we, are we submitting our desires and our life to it? So we've got to come to the word with the right posture. And it's this, humble submission to the word rather than standing in authority over the word. Search the word with humility and the fear of the Lord, trusting that when, what the word says will lead to freedom and life for you. Moses puts it this way in the book of Deuteronomy, this word is your very life. And so that means that when you encounter those hard sayings, you don't lean out, but you lean in. As Augustine puts it, he said, faith seeking understanding. Rather than we come to the text demanding that we fully understand it before we trust in it, we need to trust in it and trust that as we have faith, we seek to understand and God will give us understanding. So it's faith-seeking understanding. In other words, I think one of the best ways to approach the text is, is one of the men that encounters Jesus in, in the Gospel of Mark. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's how we begin to correct our postures and our longings is we approach God's word with the the, the prayer and the cry, I believe, help my unbelief. What an example of submission of our hearts to the word of God. So we've got to listen to the word, we've got to long for the word, and we've got to cultivate living with the word. And we've got to do that through having right expectations. Having right expectations. Look, when Jesus calls us to abide in the word, I feel like us in, in evangelical church culture here in, in Missouri and America in general, is it's like we just expect that Hey, when we call people to quiet time and we call people to come to church, that it's going to be this like, like it has to be this emotional experience. It has to be this like, like Holy Spirit, powerful encounter, mountaintop experience every time, or we just kind of leave it to the side. It's like, if we don't have that for a little while, then, then what's this really all about? And, and we've got to correct our, our expectations because the, the way we live with the word in our lives is not this constant mountaintop experience. But it is going to be a perseverance where we learn to enjoy the word more and more all the time. But, but it's not a, just like a high of the truth will set you free. But, but it is also digging into the, the weeds of, of the in-between passages. What Matt called a kind of flyover country. Because every aspect of the word is powerful and life-giving. And so I, I kind of compare it to this. Like, some of you uh, enjoy long-distance running. Um, for the longest time in my life, I didn't understand uh, weird people like you, um, but then I became one. All right, in high school, like, um, I did not, um, I tried cross-country, 
hated it. I was like, give me a ball, I'm going to go play soccer. All right, I want a point to this thing where I can maybe slide tackle somebody. But, um, but anyway, I just didn't understand. Like people talk about this runner's high and like the enjoyment that they get and going out. And I'm just like, you're just like, you're just torturing yourself. What are you doing? Can I get an amen? Some of you feel that way this morning. All right. Um, and so, but, but our life in the word is similar to what, what takes place in learning to enjoy long distance running. And not everyone's going to learn to enjoy long distance running. I'm not worried about selling you on that this morning. Um, but, but look, as you begin to run, and I found this in 2020 because I really didn't have other than like hanging out with my kids in the house. Uh, you get a little stir crazy and I began to go crazy. And so I just got out and ran. That was all I had, uh, all I was able to do. And so I did a lot of running. Um, and over time, what I found after months of just running four to five days a week is that my, like, it wasn't this like, incredible like explosive like experience every time I went running but like I just learned to enjoy it more and more and it became life-giving and I felt the effects in my body and like I had more energy and all these like like benefits just added up over time it was an incredible thing and then as I remember like after months like looking back and going man that like like I like my physical shape is just transformed and it's similar what happens as we we abide in Jesus' word, persevering over a long period of time. It, like Every good long-distance runner knows if you go out there every time expecting to have a new PR, a new personal record, like you're going to be discouraged and disappointed over and over again. And sometimes we come to the word just expecting to have like this new personal like epiphany every single time. And we're going to be disappointed if that happens. But it, if you live with the word in your life, over the long haul, it will benefit you far more than running could ever possibly do. You will experience the life and the freedom and the foundation and stability that it gives you that nothing else in this word can. And so live with the word. Long for the word. Listen to the word. Church, we, we will be living on someone's word. That's inevitable. We'll be listening to someone's word, we'll be longing for someone's word to be true, and we will be changing our lifestyle based on someone else's word. The question is, whose word are you following? What house do you belong to? Is it the father of all things and truth and life itself, or is it the father of lies and death and destruction? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning just... I'm grateful for the good news of Jesus that he offers us life and freedom and hope. And Lord, I just pray, God, that we would be a people that persevere and abide in your word, even in the midst of this turbulent season, God, that we would find our foundation in you and enjoy the life and freedom of listening to and longing for and living with your word. God, we praise you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.